Lots of REF power couples here. So. All right, what we're doing this semester is we are going through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 2. And we're looking at how Acts is the gospel of Luke part 2. That, God, the, that Acts claims to prove that Jesus is alive. And the way that you can know he is alive is this, weak, this seemingly weak thing called the church keeps expanding. And that's what I'd ask you to look at tonight, is that if you're investigating Christianity, if you're struggling with the truth of the Bible's claims, here's what Acts 2 begs you to look at. At the beginning of Acts 2, which we're not going to read, there it appears to be maybe 120 Christians, most of them just kind of a ragtag group of uneducated uh, Jewish people. But by the end of this chapter, when we get there, you will see there are 3,000 believers and people being converted day by day And eventually, and this is just historical fact, Christianity amidst people trying to stamp it out, amidst the Roman Empire not being too excited about Christianity, will expand until it overtakes the Roman Empire. And all I would ask is if you are struggling with the truth claims of the Bible, you cannot ignore that. You have to come up with another explanation for the church. Then the fact that that Acts claims that this is because Jesus is alive and His Holy Spirit is at work. And so what we're going to read right here, we're going to drop down right into the middle of Acts 2, which is, if you are here last week, Pentecost has happened. So the the third person of of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, has been poured out. Peter is preaching a sermon, and this is right in the middle of it as he preaches about who Jesus is. So let me uh, me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Your word is power. Uh, You say the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And uh, I thank you for that because my words have no power. My opinions don't really matter. Uh, But your word uh, brings life. And so we ask that as we come to your word uh, with questions, as we come to your word with sins, we come to your word weak, uh, that you would help us to see Jesus. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, here is Acts 2. I know this is a long passage, but hang with me. Verse 22. This is Peter speaking. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. That was a quotation from Psalms, by the way. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not to abandon to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, it's another quotation from the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The psalmist says that God's word is sweeter than honeycomb. May it be so tonight. All right. This is what it means to be spiritual part two. So, when the Holy Spirit shows up in somebody's life, when people are saved, here's what starts happening. People start repenting. People start thinking. People start giving. And that's actually... Uh, and that's what we want. Uh, first, repenting. Verse 36 through 38. After explaining and preaching about Jesus, the Apostle Peter, how he's risen, how he's alive, how he's ascended, something happens. And this is the number one sign that you're a Christian, that you're spiritually alive, that God is dwelling in you. It's verse 37. That when people heard this message, they were cut to the heart. And that's the language of intensity. Something grabbed them. And Peter says, repent. This is what I want you to get tonight, if nothing else, okay? I don't know what you think it means to be a Christian. I don't know what your grid of what it looks like to, quote, be a good Christian, whatever that means. But the number one sign of being a Christian is this. Repentance. Repentance. Cut to the heart. Deep repentance. And so what is repentance? Right? It is this old Bible word that maybe conjures up these pictures of, I don't know, what it does, fire, brimstone, but... But look what it says happens. They were cut to the heart. There was this heaviness, this grief of the heart, this guilt. But over what? And Peter says it right twice. Once in verse 23, once in verse 36. He says, this Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Lord, you crucified. And, it's, and at that point, they're cut to the heart. And this is the first aspect of true repentance. They went from saying sin or rebellion or whatever you want to call it as being something out there, as being kind of this rule-breaking that's bad, but I can, I can do it sometimes, to seeing it is deeply personal. That sin is actually a hatred of and distrust of the God who made me and cares for me. It got personal fast. I mean, if you can imagine... Putting yourself in, in their shoes, right? Here they are. The, uh, many of these people uh, witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. Many of them were excited by the fact that that happened. And how terrifying would this be? That they're standing there, they're listening, that all of a sudden this Jesus, who I wanted killed, who I was excited about seeing uh, die, that's the real God. 
That's the God who made me and sustains me and the one I'm supposed to be worshiping. And I was excited about his death. That's terrifying. And, the, and see, when the Spirit cuts the heart in repentance, it doesn't just, it's not just intensity of guilt. Everybody feels guilty for things that they've done. Right? The only people in this world that don't feel guilty are what people label as sociopaths. Everybody feels guilty. Now, what it means to be cut to the heart with real repentance means that you move from this vague sense of guilt or this, this guilt over the fact that I'm not who I think I should be or this guilt over the fact that, gosh, I've hurt, I've hurt other people or I'm disappointed in myself to the point that you realize I'm not just broken rules. I've actually broken God's heart. I, my sin is against Him. My rebellion is against Him. My sin put Jesus on the cross. And so you begin to realize, I am a lot worse than I thought. I really am. And that's the first part of repentance. But the second part of repentance is this. What do you do with that guilt? Right? That's, they say, what do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized and receive forgiveness from Jesus. Think about that. Peter says, here's what you do with your guilt. You turn to the very Jesus that you killed. Here's the one that you've offended. Here's the one that we uh, have sinned against. And Peter says, here's the answer. Turn to him. That sounds crazy. Why not just hide? I can, uh, I, I can still remember this moment very vivid, vividly in my uh, early elementary school days. Um, I'd been very clearly told not what to do. Uh, you know, told, don't do this in the house. Don't, don't rough house. Don't throw, you know, footballs in the house. And yet it was what me and my brother decided to do. And so we were uh, rough housing. I was throwing the football around. And I threw the football, overthrew my brother, and watched it connect, right, with this very special uh, piece of pottery that my mom had. Uh, it was actually the You Are Special plate that was given to us on our birthday and other things. One of my mom's favorite things. And I watched it helplessly hit that, fall to the ground, shatter. I, I see some of y'all saying that y'all had that as well. Um, and it crashes to the ground. And at that point, here I am. I've broken something that's precious to my mom. I know I'm guilty. And what did I do? Here's the crazy thing. I went to my mom. I went to the one that I know I had sinned against. To the one I knew I did what I wasn't supposed to do against. And what did I find? That deep down, yes, of course my mom was upset. But deep down, you know what I realized? My mom loved me more than that plate. Of course she did. And she drew me in. And this is the second part of repentance, is that you turn to Jesus with your sin and guilt. Which means you begin to believe that He is kind and gracious. So the first part of repentance is that I have this new view of myself, is that I'm actually a lot worse than I think. But then you begin to have this new view of God, that He is a lot more kind and gracious and loving than you ever thought. Peter, in 1 Peter, is going to say it's the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. You will never repent until you're convinced God is kind. Ever. And what most of us do with our guilt is we don't go to Jesus. 
we either stay busy or we work really hard at trying to be better or we minimize it by comparing ourselves to others or I try to feel bad enough long enough so that I'll be okay or sometimes I see what's bad about me and I recognize it and then I turn and just try to be a better me, right? Okay, I'm going to tell the truth or I'm going to be nicer. All those things aren't repentance. That's just doing a runaround of Jesus. Repentance is turning from what I've done and who I am to Jesus. And you receive mercy. And you receive forgiveness. You will realize He is kinder and more gracious than I ever thought because there is Jesus bearing my sin, my stuff, And you realize He loves me beyond my wildest imaginations. He loves me so much more than whatever it cost Him to come get me. That's who He is. And you know you've begun to repent when you come to realize, I am more sinful and wicked than I ever thought. But at the same time, that means I'm more loved and treasured by Jesus than I ever dared dream. And so this is, this is the longest point by far. Because I want you to hear the number one sign that you're alive is not that you're becoming your ideal self. It's not that you have your life together. It's not that everybody likes you. It's that there is repentance. And lots of it. Is there repentance? Some of you have been around a lot of religious talk your whole life. You've had guilty feelings. You've had promises of doing better. But there's never been cut to the heart repentance. What I'll ask you tonight is this. What is it? Like, what is that one sin, that one thing that you're convinced keeps you from God? Name it. Name it and see Jesus bearing that sin. See Jesus crying out, my God, my God, I've been forsaken because my sin put him there. See it. Name it. See Jesus wearing your lust, your sex addiction, your sexual immorality, your racism, your hatred of people, whatever it is that that, that you found that you're convinced keeps you from God. See that and that He bears it. And you will find there's joy and there's cleansing and He loves you. Even if that thing is boredom with Jesus... He will take that too. And so the number one sign that the Spirit dwells in you, that you're truly alive, is repentance. And what begins to follow repentance are these two things that we're going to look at quickly. It changes the way that we think, and it changes the way that we give. We begin thinking, verse 23 through 42, the Holy Spirit really does call us to think. Look what happens. This may surprise you, but when Peter's preaching, he doesn't say, now look, this is a faith thing that I'm talking about, so check your reasoning at the door. Just kind of see if this feels right. No, he says, think it out. Like, listen to me. Use your brain. In two ways. First, he says, reason with these historical facts. Look at verse 22 and 23. Peter is saying, you know who Jesus of Nazareth is. You saw him. You, you saw some of the, the wonders and miracles he, uh, he did. You've heard about him. You know he was crucified. It's public record. You've witnessed it. The reason that nobody protests what Peter is saying is because everybody knew who Jesus was. They'd seen him. 
And then in verse 32 and 36, what does he say? We are witnesses to his resurrection. That this Jesus is alive and he's ascended into heaven. And tons of people know it. Look, this is what I No one would have believed Peter if he had stood up and said this. Look, I know you all know who Jesus is. I know that you all saw him die. But I'm telling you, he resurrected and he appeared to me and like one other guy in this kind of small corner. And he told us he's alive and now he's gone. But just trust us. Nobody would have believed that. You know why? Because they didn't believe any more in the possibility of a corpse coming to life than you or I. They just didn't. But what, what Peter and what Paul start saying is that there are all these people that Jesus has, has appeared to. Paul even says that he appeared to 500 at one time and he starts giving names and you can go ask them. He's saying the tomb is empty. You know this. This is public record. And he ends with verse 36 saying, you know for certain that Jesus is the Lord in Christ and he asks him to put the pieces together. And so in one sense, here you go. People are cut to the heart. Are you ready? Because they are confronted with facts, with truth, like historical truth. And it starts becoming too difficult to deny. And here's what I want you to actually consider. That the Holy Spirit makes you think and confronts you with truth. The Holy Spirit doesn't ask you to disengage from reality and to go in some kind of denial and fantasy world and not think. Actually, the Holy Spirit claims to bring you out of denial and start thinking about reality. And this really is unlike any other religion. The Bible and Christianity is grounded in proof, in demonstration, in evidence. And I don't know how this is going to hit you, but the Bible actually has the gall to assume that you have to check your brain at the door if you're going to reject Christianity. That it really involves your intellect. That evidence is on its side. And that's just not the assumption on the college campus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a, actually an incredibly smart physician turned pastor, he talks about the Scottish theology professor who also, always used to open his lectures like this. Here's what he would say. He'd say, gentlemen... I suggest to you that a gospel and a teaching that were good enough and great enough for the mind of Paul, the mind of an Augustine, the mind of an Aquinas, a Luther, a Calvin, a Knox, a Pascal, a Wesley, a Gladstone, are at least worthy of your respectful consideration. And we could add tons of names of scientists and uh, economists and, and writers and professors. And all I'm asking you to do is don't dismiss Christianity without actually investigating. It really does hold up. The Spirit makes you think. The Spirit also makes you think Christologically about the Bible. Right? What Peter does, without going into all this, is he just, he just unpacks the Old Testament. He unpacks the Bible that they have in their hand, which is the Old Testament that you have in your Bible. And he says, look, this Jesus who is crucified and buried and risen, this is what the whole scripture is about, right? He quotes a psalm and then he quotes another psalm and says, this is who we were supposed to be looking for. And once the Spirit comes, it's like blinders come off and they get it. They see that the Bible is all about Jesus. And in verse 42, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's like they can't get enough of it. They've now begun to see that the Bible isn't just primarily about rules and things that you have to do, but it's about Jesus. 
And this will actually begin to help you with some of your struggles about the Bible. And some of the ways that people are so dismissive about it. Look, there will be an article that will come out in the Reflector this semester. And I love the Reflector, by the way. Like half the staff uh, that the Reflector, you realize, involved RUF. So I'm pro-Reflector, okay? There will be some article that I guarantee you, because it comes out every semester, that will... Here's how it will interact with Christianity. It will say... Like, you do realize that, like, the Bible forbids, like, eating shellfish and, like, wearing polyester, right? Like, go read Leviticus. So, you, you do those things. How can you believe the Bible if you don't do those things and yet you believe these things? Right? And it, it seems like such a good argument. But what Peter would say is, think. Like, The Bible is about Jesus. And if you start with Jesus, maybe there are things in Leviticus and the rest of the Bible that start making sense in light of who He is. And not apart from it. And when you begin to see the Bible is about Jesus and not primarily about just what you can do for God, then guess what? We start repenting. Because the more I repent, the more I realize how much God has done for me. And there's joy there. And so the Holy Spirit brings us to repentance. The Holy Spirit starts making us think. And lastly, the Holy Spirit uh, changes our giving, right? Verse 42 through 46. I don't know what you thought when you read this. You might have checked out by then, honestly. This is a long few verses. Uh, But it says people are being saved left and right. And this new community forms. And they start devoting themselves to certain things. And they devote themselves to fellowship to having meals with each other, and it seems daily. And then what they start doing is they start selling their possessions until everybody around them who is in need has no need left. It says it's almost like they just have their things in common, like their family. And maybe they are now. But it's a little bit unnerving, right? What in the world? That's, that seems over the top. And Acts is saying, this is the church. This is what happens to a group of believers who realize they're alive. And are repenting all the time. That you begin to spend time with each other. Eat with each other. Invite all kinds of people into your community. And you give sacrificially. Think about those two things. First. I mean even today having a meal with somebody. Is some, has some sort of a relational component right? But back then. Meals were incredibly intimate. Never. Never would a master share a meal with his servant. Never would someone of, 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 of high social standing have a person of low social standing at his table. But all of a sudden, when repentance came, the Christian community has all kinds of people at, their, at the same table eating together all the time. Welcoming everybody with loving hospitality. This was the assumption of Christianity. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what your life has looked like. It doesn't matter the things that you've done. It doesn't matter your race, your reputation. You were wanted and welcome here. I was reading an article by uh, David Brooks, right from the New York Times, and he was he, he had followed this family in this inner city who had decided that the best way uh, they could they could be a part of the healing of their neighborhood, they live in a very impoverished community, uh, was just to start having people over for dinner. And so, first it started every Thursday, then it became more and more frequent. They just started having a lot of these underprivileged kids in their house for dinner. And it kept growing, and it kept growing, and it kept growing. And all of a sudden, these kids started feeling like they had a family. 
And they, at the end, they interview this guy named Bill Milliken, who is a veteran youth activist. And he said this. He said, I'm often asked which programs actually turn around kids' lives. He says, here's my answer. I still haven't seen one program change one kid's life. What changes people is relationships. Somebody willing to walk through the shadow of the valley of adolescence with them. And that's just true. And here's the deal. Who you hang around with, who you choose to eat with, who you invite into being friends with you, it says a lot about the God that you serve. It just does. Why? Because when there's repentance going on in our life, what do we realize? Oh yeah, here's the new view of myself. I'm a beggar. I'm a big sinner. I am helpless. And yet, the God who sits on high, who is enthroned on high, made himself nothing and came down and shares meals with me and shares fellowship with me. And actually, when you look at the last book of the Bible, do you know where this world is headed? It's headed to a feast. This long table where every tribe, tongue, and nation is lined up and is eating with each other and with Jesus. Which means the fruit of repentance in your life is you begin to feast with all kinds of different people. Because that's what Jesus is like. But see, who we invite around shows what kind of God we serve. If I only eat people with people that I'm comfortable with, <laughs> we, we are, RUF is anti-cannibalism. You need to know that that, that is our official position. If you only eat with people that you're comfortable with, you know what your God is? Comfort. If you only eat with people that can help you network up and get you up in society, you know what your God is? It's moving up in the world. It's networking. If I only eat with people who get me, then my real God is simply being understood and liked. And look, I... I know college is a place like where you live in, in dorm rooms, some of them nasty dorm rooms. I know you don't have a ton of money. I hear me. But like, do you know how many people in this room would actually love to grab a meal with you? Honestly. I know it can be awkward, but they would love it. What would it, what would it look like for you to actually start eating with people to get to know them, to listen to them? What would it look like if there were actually groups on campus that assume Christians hate them? And we don't, and we actually began eating with them. I don't know what that would do, but that's what God is like. And here's what's hard about that. Is those kind of relationships, it's actually costly. It is. But that's why people start giving up their money in this community. Because when Jesus comes crashing into your life, what you start becoming known for are the things that you're willing to give up for the sake of other people, not the things that you hold on to convinced this holds my life together. See, the other way that you know what your real God is is the thing that I will not give up. Because this is the thing that makes my life feel stable. This is the thing that makes me feel okay. This is my God. And look, Again, it's college. We don't have a ton of money. You know what I think our most precious commodity is? It's time. You have your whole lives ahead of you. 
And time is the thing that we think, I've got to have this. I've got to devote it to my networking. I've got to devote it to making all the right decisions. I've got to devote it to the perfect grades and getting up in the world. Because if I don't do it here, my life is going to be unstable. And look, these things are important. Do not hear me say that. But they're not your identity if you're a Christian. And repentance means you come face to face again and again with the God who had all the riches of heaven and left everything to make you rich with His love. And that gives you this new identity that actually starts giving things up. I'll start bringing it to close here. There, I, I read another article, actually this is today, um, about a Christian named Daryl Davis. And here's how the article begins. It begins actually with a picture of Daryl so that you know uh, that he is a... Um, he is a Christian, but you know that he's a black man. Which is why the first few uh, sentences are very startling. Because here's what it says. When someone Daryl Davis has befriended leaves the Ku Klux Klan, the former KKK member gives Davis the robe he wore as a member of that group. Over the years, Davis, by his own account, has amassed dozens of these retired jerseys of hate. Davis goes to Klan rallies. He's invited Klansmen to his home. He calls some of them friend, even though they call him inferior. He even started driving the daughters of an incarcerated clansman to the prison so they could visit their father. And then this is how the article begins to end. And eventually, after years, the family knows that none of the man's clans, clans friends cared about him anymore. And the only man still serving and loving their family was Daryl. Towards the end of the article, Daryl just says this, Look, I never set out to convert anybody. I just befriend them. And they end up converting themselves. Look, These former clansmen are being released from their bondage of hatred and actually being converted by the Holy Spirit through what? Through Daryl's constant compassion and relentless giving of time and money and reputation and truth. And that's how I'll end. See, the people of God in Acts become an evangelistic community. Why? People were being saved and added to their number because when they came around Christians, what they started realizing is, man, when I'm around these people, they care for me. They want me. They care about my needs. And so that brought them in and then they started investigating the apostles' teaching and prayer and all these things. And what they found was the reason that these Christians were so devoted to God It's because amazingly, their God was incredibly devoted to them. And that's the good news. If our community of RUF is not known by this kind of love, what it means is repentance is foreign to us. And it starts with me. Because in repentance, you keep growing in your awareness of just how gracious and just how faithful and just how forgiving the real God is. And so the call tonight is this. Repent. Repent. For the first time or for the thousandth time. And what you'll discover is that even though I've been faithless today, even though I wandered away, Jesus hasn't been. Jesus is still there. Jesus is still your righteousness. And out of that comes real joy. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for... Honestly, in some ways, I think when we read uh, this portion of Acts 2, it seems too good to be true. Uh, It seems almost fantastical. But Lord, um, you are life. 
you can bring real praise and rejoice, uh, rejoicing tonight. Would you, even those of us who don't know how to repent, would you, would you help us? Would you give us the gift of repentance and experience that Jesus is better than we think? In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, we're now going to stand and sing appropriately in Christ alone.